Dad the Man, the guy who's living life the right way by loving and leading his family. World class at his craft and admired by many, but more importantly, he sets the tone for what a great man, husband, and father looks like. That's who Dad the Man is. And the truth is, as men, husbands, and fathers, we experience and struggle with so many of the same things. And it's time we recognize that we're all in this together. So drop your ego at the door and join us in the conversation. Welcome to Dad the Man. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Dad the Man podcast. My name is Brendan Wall, and I am your host. And today, I do have one ask for you. If you are enjoying the show, if you are learning anything at all, or if you have any takeaways today, please do me a huge favor and help me to share the show. Whether that is mentioning it to a friend or telling somebody at work or maybe even sharing us on social media, I cannot thank you enough for your support. So today's guest is none other than Rob Wolf. Rob is a former research biochemist and is the two times New York Times bestselling author of The Paleo Solution and Wired to Eat. Rob has transformed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people around the world via his top-ranked podcast called The Healthy Rebellion, through his books, through his seminars, and his products as well. Rob has functioned as a review editor for the Journal of Nutrition and Metabolism and as a consultant for the Naval Special Warfare Resiliency Program, and he serves on the board of directors of many innovative startups with a focus on health and sustainability. Along with being a true pioneer in both the CrossFit and Paleo movements, Rob holds a purple belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and is a former California State Powerlifting Champion. Rob has provided seminars in nutrition and strength and conditioning to a number of big-time entities, including NASA, Naval Special Warfare, the Canadian Light Infantry, and the United States Marine Corps, among others. But more recently, Rob wrote a book titled Sacred Cow, which is also produced as a documentary, which you've probably seen advertised on Netflix. Rob is also the co-founder of the exploding electrolyte brand called Element, spelled out L-M-N-T, which I absolutely love. And uh, when I originally scheduled this conversation with Rob, he sent me a huge box of Element, which I thought was such a cool gesture. Um, And after drinking it for a few days, I am now absolutely hooked. So I have no affiliation with Element and I get no kickback from them or anything like that. Um, And I'm typically very hesitant to suggest or recommend uh, supplements or products um, to anybody, but this is one that I really, really love. Um, It's become a staple in my daily routine. Now, if you don't know Rob from any of the things that I've already mentioned, then maybe you recognize him as a former guest on some of these ultra-popular podcasts like the Joe Rogan Experience, Ben Greenfield Fitness Podcast, Cleared Hot, Mark Bell's Power Project, The Doctor's Pharmacy, or many, many others. If you can't tell, Rob is a guy who does a lot. He's brilliant, articulate, and unapologetically rational, refusing to let politics or other ulterior motives manipulate his conclusions. But above it all, Rob is an incredible man, husband, and father, and I am so excited to share this conversation with him. So here's my conversation with the Rob Wolf. And we are live. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Dad the Man podcast. My name is Brendan Wall, and I am your host. And today, guest of honor, the one and only Mr. Rob Wolf. Rob, I I was trying to think about ways... To, to introduce you to our audience. And I have to say, I was, I was struggling a little bit to, to come up with the best way to do it. And I say that because it's like, I followed you for a little while, but it's like the more that I dig in, into to you and your content and, and the, just everywhere that you are and everything that you do, it's, you're kind of like the Dos Equis band. You're like the most interesting man in the world. Like you've got your hands in so many different places. I mean, just a few off the top. 
co-founder of Element Electrolytes, multiple time New York Times bestselling author, you know, pioneer in the paleo movement, California state powerlifting champ, brown belt in jujitsu. You started the first and fourth CrossFit affiliate gyms, which to me, that's, that's nuts. You're a podcaster yourself and a community leader in that regard, husband, father, you got all this stuff going on. So, so first of all, thank you for making some time out of all these things to chat with us today. And then I'll kind of flip that back to you and say, you know, like when you meet somebody, you introduce yourself and they ask you what you do, what do you tell them that you do nowadays? I'm not entirely, the answer honestly is I'm not entirely sure what I do. And uh, <laughs> uh, because we do have our fingers in a lot of different pies and it, it, it's kind of a different world than, you know, what my dad grew up in, you know, it's, uh, mm -hmm. He was kind of a, a handyman electrician, you know, and that that's who he was. And, and we, we, my wife and I do several different things. We do a little bit of angel investing. We have an online platform where we do, you know, uh, health related stuff. Uh, we've done books and podcasts and everything. I, I guess usually I will say, Hey, have you heard of the paleo diet? And it's like, Oh, I've written some books and that, and, you know, I do some you know, health education around that stuff. And that's usually kind of the, uh, the intro. And usually people have heard something about CrossFit. So I may mention a little bit about some of the, the work in that, but it, it's a uh, definite, it's funny when you have to fill out any type of like governmental survey or something, it's like, <laughs> what industry do you work in? And I'm like, yeah. ah, is it health? Is it education? You know, I, I, it, it, it's a, it's a little bit tough to pin down. I'm not entirely sure who or what I am myself. So I, I don't know what that says about me, but it, it, it's a tough one to pin down. Well, good. That makes me feel a little bit better about struggling to uh, come up with a good intro. So it sounds like you're struggling as well. So we'll, we'll call it even on that. Um, so thinking about places to wait in, like one of the, one of the ways that I, I guess originally became aware of you was uh, I call you like the defender of all things meat. And that's kind of, that's like a cape that you wear, I think. And um, so I'd love to hear you kind of just unpack for us. Like, how did you get into that position where you were, you know, just defending meat, doing research on, uh, you know, on growing meat, on, on eating meat mm -hmm. for nutritionally, the sustain, sustainability of it. Can you just unpack that for us a little bit? Yeah. So, I mean, nutritionally, I got into this space with it, it clearly kind of a, a meat centric or a meat inclusive, you know, orientation. I, I actually became pretty sick tinkering with a, a vegan diet and there were a lot of other externalities there. So I was in a graduate program. I was living in Seattle. I had not seen the sun in years. I lived in a basement apartment with a roof about three inches above my head and I'm only five foot nine, you know? So, um, my vitamin D levels, I finally did get them checked back then. And they were 12. I mean, I was barely above like rickets. So clearly poor immune function, super inflamed state. But that for me, that, that really grain and legume intensive, you know, bean and rice type, type, uh, vegan approach, it was horrible for me. And I ended up, uh, through a, a variety of, I ended up developing ulcerative colitis, I'm about 170 pounds right now with the low ebb of my ulcerative colitis. I was about 125, 130 pounds. And it was from malabsorption, wow. like whatever food I put in, it went out largely unchanged. And so I just was starving to death, no matter how much food I, I put in my mouth. And it was tinkering with this low carb paleo approach that, that really saved me. And then as I started working with lots and lots of people, I, I as you mentioned, I was early in the CrossFit scene. And I just saw thousands and thousands of people with gut and autoimmune related issues. 
And it was devilishly hard to get any positive forward momentum with these folks without the inclusion of like meat and seafood and, and, and stuff like that. And, and oftentimes it also required the additional thing of excluding some things, occasionally wheat or dairy, you know, depending on, on the reactivity of the individual. So that kind of cemented my notion that animal products are pretty darn important for human nutrition. And I know some people can manage a, a vegan diet better than others. Um, I, I think you do need to supplement with it and whatnot to, to make all that work, but some people thrive on it. Like they do really well, but for a lot of folks, I think meat and animal products are really important as, as this nutritional piece, uh, particularly like breastfeeding moms and growing kids. I, I think it's doubly important in that scene. So mm -hmm. I, I feel like it's very important from a health perspective, but then we, you know, as early, I think it was 2002 was the first time I heard somebody mention that like pastured meat was a problem because of greenhouse gas emissions. And I started really thinking about that. And I, I'm a biochemist by training. I, I never ended up getting a physics degree, but I was just a couple of classes off of like a dual major. And so I, I really think in terms of systems and, and thermodynamics and ecology and whatnot. And I started thinking about this and I'm like, okay, so the planet evolved with huge tracts of grasslands. And on those grasslands are these herbivorous organisms that consume grasses and plants and convert that cellulose into energy. And then mm -hmm carnivores and predators and omnivores eat those animals. And there's this dynamic interplay. And this has existed as long as complex life has existed on the planet. Like literally there are analogies to modern bison and cattle that existed in dinosaur times, you know, grasslands, herbivores, predators, and all this. And I was just like, this doesn't square that this is going to destroy the planet. Like this is actually descriptive of a super healthy dynamic ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And it was 2006 actually that I had my first public debate on this topic to discussing, and this was at California State University, Chico, discussing kind of the, the physics and the thermodynamics of sunlight, grass, land, animals, and the, the really remarkable efficiency of that system versus our modern industrial road crop food system, which is in its own way, really a miracle. Like it, it, uh, it produces enormous amounts of food. 50% of the food that is produced around the world today is never eaten. It gets landfilled, um, somewhere around wow. 2004, 2005, nobody's sure the exact date, but more people began to die in the early two thousands from diseases of excess calories than diseases of de deficiency. Historically, humanity's, you know, uh, main challenge has been finding enough food and dealing with infectious disease. And mm -hmm. somewhere around the early 2000s, that shifted. Like we are so good at producing calories that, you know, when, when I think when you and I grew up, um, there was childhood diabetes and adult onset diabetes. Childhood diabetes is type one diabetes. It's an autoimmune condition. Children didn't get type two diabetes. Type two diabetes is a process of developing insulin resistance. And usually it takes years or decades to get there. Now the fastest growing type of diabetes among children is type two diabetes. And, and, uh, so it, Man. you know, it, 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 I started thinking about all of this stuff, the health and the, 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 you know, the kind of like food system story, but also as trying to be, do my scientific diligence, I had an, I, my, my hypothesis was that 
growing food in this way, particularly animal based foods was more energetically efficient. And, and an example of where that becomes important, most people are familiar with the idea they go to fill up their car with gas and it will, many times it will say this may contain up to 10% ethanol, you know, in, in the gas. You can burn ethanol as a fuel, uh, you know, in, in internal combustion engines. But the interesting thing about that is it costs more energy to make the ethanol than what you get out of it. So the farmers that raise corn for ethanol use diesel and gasoline to run the machinery to produce the, the, the ethanol. And the only way that that whole system works is through uh, these really Byzantine uh, subsidies programs from the government. It is an absolute boondoggle. So if you were really concerned about, say, like climate change and carbon emissions, ethanol is a terrible idea. It costs more energy to get that thing than what we, we ultimately get out of it. And this is very much the same story on the, the you know, animal husbandry side, uh, particularly with beef, chicken and pork are kind of a different story. Those things are wholly dependent on grains and soy and, and those sorts of things, the way that they're raised. So there are some legitimate concerns there. And I think that those things could be cleaned up and improved. But, you know, the over the course of time, the, the tying together of health, climate change, and a host of kind of social justice related topics, they've, they've been wrapped together in this really interesting, um, now I don't want to make it overly political, but a, a, what I would call kind of a neo-Marxist framework where mm -hmm. you could change climate change for social justice for health and the, the, you know, within a paragraph and it wouldn't change at all. You know, like these things just get used completely interchangeably. And although these things do have intersections to them, like I, I see them as being very discrete and separate entities. And when you lump them all together, it really obscures what is really occurring there. And uh, I've got to say, um, championing this stuff, like I, over my shoulder, you see the the poster for Sacred Cow, we have both a book and a film that discusses the health, environmental, and ethical considerations of a meat-inclusive food system. Um, this has done nothing for like my monetary, uh, uh, you know, betterment. Um, I've been nearly canceled a multitude of times for talking about this stuff. Uh, the, the only reason why I really champion this is I just can't get the numbers to square with what the claims are around how injurious animal products are supposed to be to the environment versus what I, I, I actually see, you know, when you, when you do something crazy, like actually reading the literature on this stuff. And, and particularly when you consider like pastured meat and regenerative, uh, you know, agricultural systems. So this is the reason why I've jumped in and championed this stuff. And, uh, you know, because this is kind of a fatherhood, you know, parenting oriented podcast. I have two daughters. I'm hoping that the, they have the opportunity to have a better world to live in than the one that I, I am, you know, I've had, and I've lived arguably in the, the best period of human history that we've ever, ever experienced, but it would be great if it's even better for them. And the direction that the, the story is going around our food systems, I think is completely antithetical to sustainability or longevity you know, and so I've been really pushing back and, and you literally sound like a crazy person, someone who hates the world, who, who wants to, uh, uh repress other people. If you suggest that uh, animal inclusive food systems are actually sustainable and good for the environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, 
I have to say in hearing you in hearing you articulate that it, it reinforces something that I really appreciate you appreciate about you. And it's your willingness to, to speak the truth. It's your willingness to pursue factual information and then let the facts steer you and your thoughts and your actions moving forward. And it seems like we're in this time now, like you said, in the, in the, in the political climate that we're in, it seems like that's so hard to do. Like there's a legitimate headwind against truth in a lot of different ways. So I appreciate you so much for being willing to stand up and have the balls to defend the research that you got. I mean, hearing you talk about, I mean, just, I mean, the, the diabetes issues with, with young children and, and talking about, you know, your daughters and wanting to leave a life, you know, uh, leave them with in a world that's better than what you grew up in. I want to, I want to kind of take that and I want to pivot this into the responsibility that we have as leaders of our families and, and the responsibility that we have to provide the best, um, provide the best nutritional options and education and information to, to our families by leading from the front. You've obviously dedicated your life to standing up and fighting the good fight for everybody. But for us at home, like I want, I want you to help us maybe frame the importance of why health is so important for our young kids. So one of the things that I see a lot and I hear this mistake a lot is like, Oh, he's, he's really skinny. He can eat whatever he wants as, as if there is no, you know, difference between weight and nutrition and health. So I want you to, if you can, if you don't mind, try to unpack that just a little bit for us through the lens of, you know, a parent trying to do the best they can for, for their young children. Yeah. I mean, it, and it's tough because, uh, 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 my kids are outside sledding again. So, uh, <laughs> um, we don't want to, you know, create disordered eating, right? And this is one of the concerns that, that comes up where, when people mention um, putting any type of constraints on, you know, food. But mm -hmm. no parent would just, you know, hey, uh, open a door to a, a buffet that is like Oxycontin, alcohol, tobacco, marijuana, and on and on and on. And like, mm -hmm. oh, well, ju just, just use it. My, you know, within reason, you know, you, you <laughs> practice a little bit of moderation on that. That's, it's ridiculous. And some folks get really prickly when you start tying analogies between modern processed foods and the potential addictive nature they have and extrapolating it to, to drugs. But I, I think it's a real thing. Uh, I, I know for a fact that the, the modern industrial food manufacturers are really savvy and how to make food taste amazing. Like what's the Lay's potato chip tagline? Bet you can't eat just one. And like, I'll take that bet all day long, man. Like yeah. they, there's been like so much money spent into like, how does this thing smell? What does this sound make when it cracks? And it's kind of like the, the you, you know, what they used to do with car doors. When you would shut a car door, they would engineer it. So it sounded really, you know, robust and, and mm -hmm. burly and, and all this type of stuff. It had nothing to do other than like getting somebody to buy the car, like shut the door and it, it, it sounds good. And our modern food system is, is rigged to, to make it really easy to eat the wrong types of foods, way too much of the wrong types of foods. And it, it's tough. Like I, we, we cook two meals a day. The, the lunch meal is usually like a grab and go thing of, of like lunch meat and cheese and, you know, that, uh, fruit and stuff like that. I just yep. can't get my shit together enough to cook three legitimate meals. I can do breakfast. I can do dinner, but like the lunch is a, a grab bag. Um, if 
stuff that came out of a box or a bag or a can was healthy enough to keep us doing what I would want to do, that would be a godsend. That would be absolutely amazing, but I, I just can't pull this, that stuff off. And, you know, I, I've tried to strike a balance with my kids. One thing is I talk to them like adults. Like I, I always have, I, mm-hmm. I, I've never talked to them like kids. Sometimes it takes longer because the vocabulary requires, well, what did that word mean? You know? And so mm-hmm. there's this whole thing there, but I've made the point to them that if you want to be strong and healthy and do the things that you want to do, if you want to have a sharp mind to be able to think the thoughts that you want to think and everything, then food is super important. And we tend to make that very protein centric. So the kind of the only big rule that we have in the house is that kids start with their protein ideally. And then once they get through with that, then I'm okay where they go next. And we generally don't have a ton of really dodgy options in the house. Like we will have some corn chips. We will have some, like some sugar-free chocolate and some things like that. And, uh, you know, every couple of weeks, the, the wife and girls will, will make some, some baked goods and they will absolutely plow through them in, in pretty, you know, record time. But, um, both of the girls are, are tall for their ages are strong for, for, you know, their, their peer group and they enjoy that physicality. And also, it's interesting, like uh, both girls do Brazilian jiu-jitsu and they've been in, in different situations, both at jiu-jitsu and other places where kids will just totally melt down. Like the kids will just lose it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know exactly what's going on with the kid, but uh, uh, I think a lot of it is these kids experiencing low blood sugar crashes mm-hmm. after kind of a, a poor diet. And our, our girls have eaten enough dodgy foods at, at various times that they'll experience that. Like we do a, a Friday family pizza night and mm-hmm. totally unprompted. It, it was about a year to a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, both girls came up to my wife and I, and they're like, Hey, could you cook some chicken or maybe a hamburger to go with the pizza? Cause I don't feel good after only eating pizza. And this was just like totally unprompted. So I, I know I'm bouncing around a lot here, it, it, but, uh, you know, we, we try to just talk to the girls about what sound nutrition is, talk to them a little bit about, you know, some of these foods taste amazing and, and we could, it'd be great if we could eat them all day, but you're, you're just not going to be healthy. And so we have to have kind of a, a strategy for dealing with this. And that's the way that, that we've kind of navigated it. And I guess the thing that I would throw out there at kind of a macro level, this is something that's interesting to me, the, the impetus for you being healthy really is one of these things that cuts across uh, political lines. Like if you're more on the left-leaning progressive side and kind of see things as more collectivist and you should do things for the good of society, then you should be healthy because you're going to be less of a burden on, on the, the total healthcare system. And if you're more of you know the right-leaning side and personal accountability and everything, then you being out of shape and being a burden to yourself and or your family is kind of bullshit. You know, it's like mm-hmm. you, you, it behooves you to get your, get your act together. To me, it's no different than like if you had a gambling issue or a drinking issue or anything else that is producing a risk exposure to you and your family. And again, it doesn't mean, you know, absolute perfection, but there, there's a big gradation between the way that people generally eat and like some sort of idealized, like perfect diet. And if, mm-hmm. if you get 20% towards like, you get some protein, you get some fruits and vegetables, and then, you know, every single day just can't be dessert day <laughs> all the time. You know, you, yeah. you just can't do it. I, I, uh, 
I was talking with a friend. My mom has a, a book that, that she gave to me. For, I think it was published in 1932. Mm-hmm. I want to say it was Betty Crocker, but I, I, I'm not sure what it was, but it was literally recipes and then a bunch of kind of like social advice, you know, like, mm-hmm. like almost like a, a, an advice column thing. And one of the questions was, is it okay to eat the uh, dessert every day with dinner? And the, the answer was absolutely not. And one point of it was that, and this thing was written, it, you know, right at the, the beginning and the ramp up of the Great Depression, mm-hmm. was that that was gauche to, if, you know, if you've got resources to do that, that's fine, but it would be gauche for you to, to have that much excess every day. And then the, the other point was that it would be unhealthy and one dessert on Sundays when you have a family dinner is just fine. Like, yeah, that's all yeah. that you could do. And if we consolidated all the crap that we eat, all the sugared beverages, all the alcohol and everything, and it's like, okay, you can have a reasonable portion of that on Sundays with dinner. And then the rest of your stuff was actually real food that like our grandparents would have recognized. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't have an issue. Like I wouldn't be doing the work that I'm doing because I would be <laughs> unnecessary. You know, I would need to f- go find something else to do. So I don't know if that perfectly answered your question, but I mean, kind of macro level, that's a, a lot of the angles that I think about with it. Yeah, no doubt. The the behavior thing is huge, you know, coming out, like I will say, like hand raised in, in the year of COVID, it, you know, for us that, that kind of flipped our world upside down that went from me being at work it honestly saved me in a lot of ways because it got me off of the workaholic track but one of the downsides was it also kind of put me in a different rut nutritionally because we kind of just formed some bad habits getting used to a new way of life Mm -hmm. and a lot of that trickled down pretty heavily to my kids and you know my wife and I've talked about it and we've kind of grown back out of it now but seeing the way like my oldest son five years old now seeing the way he acted coming out of last year blood sugar swings like you were talking about like oh my gosh the meltdown we were the kids like our my son was the one with the meltdown all the time and since then we we've really made a concerted effort not to just like flip everything upside down but like like you said start taking like the 20 percent steps like okay breakfast is going to be better all right dad's on breakfast we're going to have like a little protein maybe a little fruit like we might have some toast with it might not but it's going to be that kind of thing and it's amazing how big of a difference it makes, like the, the amount of public meltdowns that we've had, you know, end of this year compared to the beginning of this year and last year, like, it, it, it's so it's tangible. Stunning. You can't deny it. Yeah. You yeah, cannot deny it. Yeah. So I want to, I want to kind of take that. And then I want to ask you, so like behavior, I would consider that more of like a short-term obvious symptom of bad diet, blood sugar swigs. If we looked out longer, is there anything that you've seen in research in the long term on kids that, you know, when they are little, it's so easy to just say, like, there's there's cute little kids, they should be able to eat, you know, whatever they want, they're they're not overweight, whatever it is. But have you seen anything in the long term effects that that has on children? Well, I mean, this is tough, but you just look at different rates of diseases in kids, you know, and again, this uh, type two diabetes was unheard of 30 years ago it didn't exist. You know, it, it only existed in adults and typically it was adults that were like 50 plus years old. Like it, it was something, Oh, old people get that. Mm-hmm. And now it's just rampant uh, among youth. And, and, uh, I, I think the youngest diagnosed, uh, uh, kid with type two diabetes, um, is, is something like 18 months old now. The parents were, were putting like some sort of Coca-Cola thing in the kid's bottle and, and, oh my you know, God. goldfish and it, like, it, it's, it's amazing. It, it speaks to how 
resilient the human body is because any type of machine, if you treated it that way, it would just break. But yeah. um, it, it's a tricky thing to get into this. Well, kids should do this or kids should do that. It, it's mm-hmm. like kids should have a great birthday and they should probably kick their heels up on the birthday around the holidays. They should probably, you know, same deal. Like it should be fun and, and it, it, it shouldn't be holidays are times of feast. You know, you think about mm-hmm. religions and every culture, like that's a time that everybody got together and you did something different than what you do every single day. Mm-hmm. But what we've done is we've turned every single day into a birthday party, you know, <laughs> and that's, that's not, it's just not working, you know, yep. and, and, uh, trying to calorie control that is insanity. Like if, uh, like, uh, I've never met a cheesecake I didn't like, you know, yep. and it, Amen. and it's, a wedge of cheesecake is just enough to really get me interested in and excited about this cheesecake. But man, if I can invest in the whole cheesecake, then I'm, I'm, I'm fully in like, and, and I, there are a few twisted individuals that can have like a little wedge of something and then stick it in the refrigerator and they don't go back to it. But I think those people are also the individuals that have a whole wardrobe made out of human skins because they're like a, a serial killer or something <laughs> like we are not wired to do that. So mm-hmm. I, I think it's kind of well-intentioned, but I think I kind of call bullshit on the, the, like, well, these kids should do this. I think it's laziness on the part of the parents, like the parent. It, and oftentimes when we're trying to get the parents to change their act, they're like, well, little Jimmy likes this and little Susie likes that. And it's like, of course they do. And when they grow <laughs> up, they would love cocaine and heroin too, if given the option, you know, but you don't necessarily want that to be the end all be all, you know? And so like for our kids, we, we have a bunch of lunch meat, salami. We have uh, different types of salted nuts. We have uh, uh, some sugar-free chocolate bars by Lily's that are really mm-hmm. good, but they, they're funny. Like you have a couple of pieces, you're like, that was good, but you don't want to eat the whole bar. Whereas like when, when they do their, uh, the kids do their Halloween thing, like they get a Snickers or a Twix or something. And it, it's just a whole different level. But We've set up a whole bunch of snacks that are good to go for the kids. And we completely let them self-monitor that you eat as much of that as you want. And so jerky and lunch meat and all kinds of things. So if they get hungry in between meals, they've got some good options that they are in charge of. So I'm providing them some agency. You eat whatever you want within these options. And then mm-hmm. I, I try to keep the, the options such that they're going to make probably pretty good decisions with it. And again, you know, like a birthday party or Christmas or something, we, we kick our heels up and, and do some different things. I have celiac. And so like, we are a gluten-free house. Like I, I, and, and both girls seem to have at least some GI reactivity and even a little neurological effects from the gluten. Like my oldest mm-hmm. gets a little bit of a tick when, when she gets exposed to gluten. And so we're just gluten-free house. So like mm-hmm. if they want a bun for a hamburger, then we do a gluten-free bun and, you know, no harm, no foul with that. But I, I do really push back on this, this thing like, oh, they're kids and they need a childhood. Yeah, they, they do. But let's think about what kids did in the 1950s a little bit. Like they didn't mm-hmm. have a giant soda. Uh, if they went to soccer or football practice, they weren't drinking 32 ounces of Gatorade after every event and, and stuff like that. Like they had three meals a day. They had some snacks, it, you know, it was the four food groups. It, it was a compositionally, it was an entirely different world than what we, we live in now. And yeah. 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 Um, so that's probably a wake up call for a lot of people that are, that are hearing this. And it's pro- like, I'm hoping that that is right. Like I'm hoping that people hear this and say, 
okay, I got to do something different because I'm not, we're just kind of drifting and we're just feeding our kids this and that. So I want to, I want to kind of steer this towards, um, you know, the, the young dad, young mom, whoever it is, who's, who's, who's having this moment and they're at the grocery store and they're saying, okay, I got to do a little bit better. Let's, let's not, you know, what's the Winston Churchill quote, the perfection's the enemy of progress. Like we don't get this all right today, but we got to take a step in the right direction. And, and I, one of the things that like, I think about this even, and I think about this and I like, I'm very interested in my own nutrition. So this is something that I'm not completely, I guess, naive on, but like when I'm at the grocery store, I'm still like, there's the whole pasture raised and organic versus like conventionally raised meat. Like is conventional meat, something we should like, if we can't get the grass fed, like what's the alternative. And I, and I think that's an important question. Cause like, you know, when I'm at the grocery store, I'm, I'm conscious of price. I know a lot of other people in, in our mm-hmm. audience probably are as well. So there's a lot of little nuances with that. Like I can't buy organic strawberries. Should I just not get any fruit and should I just move on to something else? Like big open-ended question there, but I want to kind of phrase that like bigger, biggest boxes to check for people when they're at the grocery store and they're trying to take that first step of helping their family kind of get their nutrition in order. How would you steer them? That's a great question. It's really important. And it's one of the things that the food elitists like uh, hamstring people and, and sabotage people, you know, it's like, if it's not organic produce, then don't eat any of it. It's like, well, what else do you eat? Like a a bagel, you know I mean? And so, um, my only thought around say like grass fed meat, organic produce, if you've got the money and you want to do that because you, you are concerned about kind of the environmental potential environmental upside of doing that extra step by all means do it. But above and beyond that, the most important thing is to keep you and your family out of the healthcare system. Like for the love of God, like you, (laughs) you don't want to be there. Your kids don't want to be there dental checkup. That's it. Like that's as far in my opinion, as you want to interface with the healthcare system. Like you don't want to be a consumer of it because Mm -hmm. everything goes bad from there. So, you know, the regular eggs, the, the conventional meat, the Costco meat, the Walmart meat, that is fine. And this is one of the, the really painful like lies that have been told from the, the food in the, the food elitists is that you have only the best stuff or nothing. Because the mm-hmm. difference between those things nutritionally is, is tiny or non-existent. Like it's really kind of environmental impact that, that is maybe a little bit different. And even then conventional meat, the meat that you buy out of Costco or, or Walmart, if we're talking about beef, it spends 70% of its life on grass. It's only finished for the last little remainder and, and it's given a, uh, 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 some grains and the bulk of what it's given in the finish is actually the, the leftover uh, crop residues from making alcohol. And so it's actually an amazing nutrient upcycler, like, like, you know, all this stuff mm-hmm. from making booze and whatnot is, is fed to these animals. And they do an amazing job of converting stuff that can't be eaten by humans, can't really be eaten by much of anything else. And, and cattle are just magical in being able to upcycle that stuff and make some really nutritionally dense food that is super uh, important for zinc and iron and these things that are easy for, for kids in particular to be deficient in. And that dense protein source is really satiating and satiety is our sense of like, okay, I've had enough. And, Mm -hmm. and uh, folks that don't eat enough protein, they will overeat everything else. Mm -hmm. In evolutionary biology, there's this uh, concept called optimum foraging strategy. And it basically 
every organism on the planet eats to a protein minimum. And so our body is able to sense the amino acids that enter our system, which are the building blocks of proteins. And when you get enough of those building blocks, your body, your brain tells you, okay, we're pretty good because protein rich foods are very nutrient dense. So you tend to get all the vitamins and minerals and all that type of stuff. And then in all organisms, if you don't eat enough protein, then you will tend to continue eating, trying to, to fill that void. So you know, like breakfast, bacon, eggs, sausage. Um, we also will, you, you know, just do leftovers from the night before. So if I mm -hmm. barbecue a bunch of chicken thighs or chicken breasts or something like that, the kids will have that in the morning, or I'll take those things and strip mm -hmm. them up, uh, take some corn tortillas, put them on the grill, put some cheese with it. And so they, you know, they, they get like some, uh, uh, chicken quesadilla type type things or something like that. But just mm -hmm. the, the bulk of the meals trying to have a real protein source as kind of the hub. And then we can kind of work from there. And again, on like the, the fruits and vegetable side, try to buy what's in season. Like you'll, you'll do way better. Like right now, apples are really good because we're, we're, you know, the beginning of winter and citrus mm -hmm. is just coming in. I think buying a watermelon right now is goofy unless you live <laughs> in the Southern hemisphere or like you live in Costa Rica or something. They just taste like garbage. You know, they're just yeah. not that good. Like buying grapes in December is kind of, kind of goofy because they just really don't taste that good. Interestingly, frozen fruit is awesome because they tend to pick it later. So it tends to be riper and then they flash freeze it. And so frozen fruit is oftentimes more nutritionally viable than fresh fruit because fresh fruit, they have to wow. pick it really early and it's got a long transport time and it's degrading the whole, the whole time. So like you do like the, the giant bags of like Costco or Walmart, like mixed berries or strawberries or blueberries or something. And the kids mm -hmm. snack on those. So there, it, it is way easier than I think what people think, but you, you kind of get, it's different. It's a different way of looking at things first. And then second, when we look at like all the newsstand articles and the news articles and stuff like that, we're being told, you know, that conventional, fruit and vegetables are laden with pesticides and they're going to give your kids three arms and, and all this stuff. And it, it, it's just ridiculous. You know, it's scaring people into a mode that then they make even worse decisions than, than what they would have done without any information at all. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. Like, I mean, like I said before, like I'm, I'm very, I've been into health and fitness for a long time. I try really hard to eat a, a well-balanced, I, I focus on protein, like I'm very into it. You kind of given the green light a little bit on conventional meat is better than just nothing. Like I, that's something I, I've had that like yellow light in my head when I'm at the, at the grocery store, like maybe I just shouldn't get it at all. And, and, and it's funny. Cause I'm so like into, I try to be in tune to food advertising and the, the food yeah. elite is like you said, and I try to call bullshit when I, when I need to. And I, I try to encourage people to be willing to not just say, oh, it's, it says it's sugar-free, it's going to be okay, but like really, you know, think about it. And that just shocked me a little bit. So like, I feel like I now have the green light to go and, and be a little bit more freer at the grocery store. So focus on protein and then and it sounds like supplement around that the best you can with maybe what's in season and just keeping things, you know, keeping things available that the kids can snack yep. on. I think sure. clearing, clearing stuff out is huge. You made that point before. Yep. Like we did that when we were kind of coming out of our, COVID year, the funk and the fog, whatever, like we got to do better. We got rid of all these just like 
they're quote unquote granola bars, but they're yep. just like, they're like Snickers with like a pink label. So they look healthy, but it's right. like not a healthy thing at all. It's just a gut bomb is what we kind of realized. And, um, yeah, it's, it, it's crazy. Um, how much simpler we can make it if we just make it simple. Like you said, like focus yep. on, on quality protein, the best quality that you can, and then supplement around it, go from there. And if yep. you, like, that's a very, to me, that's a very simple step one, step two, like, let's just start here. That's the first 20%. I think that you're talking about. And I think that covers a lot of bases. Yeah. And it, you think about like my mom, um, every meal had a protein, a veggie and a starch, mm -hmm. you know, and not every meal was, was like a, a trip to the, the four seasons and, you know, like, a, <laughs> a, you know, oh my God, my mind's been blown thing, but it put food on the table and our bellies were, were full. And, and by and large, that is a, a pretty damn good way to, to navigate all that stuff. And, you know, it, it, um, it, it can be more cost-effective. And also we have really encouraged our kids to get involved with the cooking. Now it can slow things down. It's a little bit of a safety hazard. <laughs> yeah. I mean, all that <laughs> stuff, but also like people today literally have no idea how to cook. They have mm -hmm. zero idea how to cook. And, launching your kid into the world with absolutely no skills in the kitchen, what are they going to do if not eat fast food or, or crap out of a, a, a bag or a box, you know? And so um, where we've had a little maybe reticence in eating something, if the kids help cook it, all of a sudden that thing tastes twice as good as what it was going to. Like, I, I can't figure it out. When I was growing up, um, my mom would make these au gratin potatoes, you know, like cut mm -hmm. the potatoes, put oh, cheese yeah. and a little bit of cream on it. There was no amount of that I couldn't eat. My kids are kind of like, oh, I don't know if I like it. And I want to like strangle them, you know, but <laughs> when they helped make it all uh -huh. of a sudden, it's like, oh, dad, this is pretty good. I'm like, oh, that's fantastic. You know, good, there you good go. for you, you know, so including kids in the meal prep is, and again, it, it's tough because sometimes you're busy. Well, all the time you're busy, you're busy, you're pushed for time and everything. You don't want to waste food. But this is just part of that investment again, like you're investing in the kids and in the family. And, and also it will, it, they may not like everything they cook, but at least they take some pride in what they did. And if they cook something that they don't like, but I like it I'm like, Hey, Zoe, great job on that. That was really good. Oh, okay. Awesome. You know? Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's awesome. I mean, learn to cook, teach your kids to cook. Like if, if we can just maybe put a box around that, yeah. I feel like that's a great starting point for everybody. And then, yeah. and then like, you know, talk about the first 20% that I think that's really the ground floor of that. So thank you um, for identifying that. So I really want to change gears now. And I want to talk a little bit more about you personally. So we kind of ran through at the beginning, I called you the, uh, the Dosakis fan, the most interesting man in the world. You've done all these different things and you, you you're like hearing you talk. Anybody that's listening today is going to be able to tell you're a very intelligent guy, very well-researched, like everything is rooted in factual research. When you think about all the things that you've done and all the things that you've seen, is, is there anything that stands out to you as what you're the most proud of? Hmm. Um, to some degree, it's kind of the things that I haven't done or that I, I, I pulled the ripcord on. So I'm, I'm really honored and proud to have been a part of CrossFit at its early inception. And I worked for it for a number of years, but and I made a lot of money in CrossFit, like a, a, as a guy that was expecting to work in a lab as a, as a chemist <laughs> and maybe become a doctor and see some bump up from there. Like I, 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 it was really remarkable for me, but the way that CrossFit was run internally, um, was horrible. They treated people horribly. 
Like it, it was super abusive and, mm. uh, our gym was the most successful gym in the whole organization. And we were held up as this kind of standard of success, but the way that we did things functionally as a business was totally different than the way that CrossFit at that point was telling people to do things. And also just the way that the, the leadership within CrossFit at that time, it has changed hands now. And, and Eric Rose is a wonderful guy. He's the CEO now. He's mm -hmm. a great guy. And I think he's fixing a lot of that stuff, but I could not abide being in that scene and seeing the, the abuse and, and whatnot there. And so we, we opted out, you know, and it was pretty, wow. pretty explosive. Um, uh, CrossFit for a long time did its level best to try to nuke everything that I did online. And it's a, it's a weird deal where I, I had a little bit of, of cachet and everything, but mm -hmm. even at that point, this was around 2009, like they were one of, if not the largest, like fitness entities on the planet. And they, yep. they had me completely in their crosshairs. And all I needed to do was just keep my mouth shut and keep collecting a check and, and, you know, just turn my eye to the, the, uh, kind of the abuse that was going on there, but I just couldn't live with myself doing that. So I may, maybe the thing I'm most proud of is I, I have been willing to stand up for some things that I, I believed in. I think that this like regenerative ag thing is another part of that. Like it's not, mm -hmm. it's not good for getting invited to, uh, Berkeley or New York cocktail parties. It's not good <laughs> for the rest of my, my bottom line, because you know, you get labeled as some sort of extremist or whatever doing that stuff. But I, I may be completely wrong about all of this stuff, but at least I'll, I'll articulate my position. I'll draw a line in the sand and then I'm there. And if somebody introduces new information to me, I'll, I'll, I'll change my mind. I'll update my, my worldview. But, you know, some, I, I think probably the proudest thing that I've done is actually, you know, standing up for people and standing up for what I, I felt was right in that situation. Similar uh, lead into this next question as the last one, considering all the, all the things that you've done and, and how well-versed you are in all these things. Is there anything that you have, like you come across as this guy that, that you're so confident and you are so grounded and like you, you are firm in the ground that you stand on and you don't really give a shit what everyone else says to you. Like you, I feel like you, you're just unshakable. So I want to, given all that, I want to ask you the question, is there anything that you struggle with or anything that you maybe feel like you're having to work on within yourself or remind yourself as you kind of go through this journey of, you know, like with CrossFit, you were in the crosshairs and now you're, I'm sure you're in the crosshairs of the, and in, in, in some political circles as well. Yep. Yeah. Is there anything, how would you answer that question? Is there anything that you struggle with or anything that you're working on? Yeah, sure. And you know, when my wife first met me, when I was like 31, then 32, I, I was still kind of a hot mess. Like I, I, uh, looking back, my parents did a really good job with me given the circumstances they had, mm -hmm. but my dad was one of five kids when his mother, when he was six, his mother died. My grandfather, his dad remarried when he was nine mm -hmm. and the woman that he married had five kids of her own. So you were looking at wow. 10 kids in this family. My grandfather didn't want that many kids. So he took his own kids and put them all in foster care which totally fucked them all up. Wow. I mean, it, it, it was a disaster. And my dad, I didn't learn this until um, in my, my early 20s. And, and so there wasn't that much time left with my dad because he died in, in 2004. But he, he spent the bulk of his young adult and adult life incarcerated, like just, just bad decision after bad decision. And my mom mm -hmm. 
got married. It, it, she was, I forget exactly when she got married, but she had her first kid at age 16. Okay. And the guy she got married to the first time was super abusive, apparently tried to kill her a couple of times. And wow. my mom before welfare or anything like that took three kids, squirreled the money she could squirrel and ran from this guy, basically, you know? And, mm -hmm. and so when I look at how tough and resilient my parents were, it's really amazing. Like, I don't know if I could have come through the things that they did, but it also had some after effect on me. Like they had a very limited picture of the world. Like if you just weren't, if you weren't incarcerated and you weren't homeless, you were doing pretty well. Like they, mm -hmm. you know, there, there were some pretty modest things there. And so yep. Some of my ambition, I, th I think my mom in particular really freaked her out. Like I wanted to go do big things. And I think that she thought that I would just go away and leave her and, you know, never reconnect. And so there was, I, there was a lot of hamstringing that I had to like uh, unweave that took most of my twenties and a chunk of my thirties. And it's really uh, my wife, Nikki, that helped me figure that stuff out. Like I, I didn't think I could build a business or, or do things successfully. So, I mean, it, it, a lot of what folks see now is having someone who loved me unconditionally and gave me the space to kind of sort this stuff out. And also when I was doing stupid stuff, you know, mm -hmm. when I, when I would, um, uh, I, I can't even think of an example, but really self-defeating stuff. Nikki was like, this is bullshit. Like th this isn't you, this isn't the real mm -hmm. you. And I'm not going to let you do this. And she held my feet to the fire. She's Italian. So it was like, I was either going to get on it or she was going to kill me and bury me in a shallow grave and move on, you know? And, uh, so, you know, I'm almost 50, I'll be 50 in January. And one thing that I've noticed, the cool thing about being at this age is like, it's not that you don't give any shits anymore, but life is just too short to, to, you know, to get all enmeshed in like the drama and everything. And you really do, you get, uh, I've noticed that the only role that Facebook has in my life now, I'll, I'll, I'll log in there once a month and I'm like, oh, this group of people have died since I checked in last time. <laughs> that's, that's like the, the only thing that, it, you know, Facebook yep. seems to serve in my life at this point. So there's this clock ticking for sure, you know, mm -hmm. not going to live forever. You got a limited time on the, on the planet and everything. And so, you know, those have been the things that I, I work on. And now I, I, my main focus is my, my kids and family. Like I love the work that I do. Um, but I honestly could turn it all off, leave tomorrow and be totally cool. Like I have mm -hmm. no attachment to whatever kind of a D level celebrity I might have. Like, I'm like, yeah, you can have it. I'm good. Like I'm going to, I'm going to have a farm. I'm going to raise some animals. I'm going to raise my kids. I'm going to practice my archery and do my jujitsu. And I'm, I'm totally good. And I, I, I think I am pretty adaptable in that regard, like I'm, mm -hmm. I'm able to just kind of cut and, and be done with a, a chapter of my life, I think in a way that most people are not able to do, but it, it's been a, it's been a process to get there for sure. Yeah. So in the, in the vein of, you know, appreciating that time and appreciating what is important and understanding that, you know, we aren't going to live forever. I want to phrase the, the next question through that lens. So I think about the term legacy and I think about what that means. It's often talked about as like, you know, zeros in a bank account, vacations, like what generational wealth looks like, you know, that I feel like those are the terms that usually get thrown around. But when somebody passes away, it's like, nobody really cares about that anymore. It's much more about the impact that that person made. So when I think about legacy, I think about the people that are the most important to me, I think about my wife and my kids. And, you know, I think about 
the moments, the memories, the lessons, like those little things that my kids, like God willing, I'm able to leave them behind on earth. They're like, those are the things they're going to carry with them. And that I want, you know, there's little things I want them to remember about me. That's what I want my legacy to be. So if I flip that around and toss that on you and say, if you are will, you are able to, you know, leave your kids behind on earth one day, what do you want your legacy to be with them? Like, what do you want your, your girls to remember about you? Very similar to what you said, like, I, and I've talked to them a little bit about my family of origin, you know, and, and both, uh, the gift that it is in some ways, because it, it hardened me up and, and also it created empathy. Like mm -hmm. I, I so hurt for the life that my dad experienced, you know, it's, it, it, I, fuck your, your father abandoning you and your siblings for this other woman and her kids. Like, holy shit, man. Like, how do you, yeah. how do you go on from that? You know? So it, it it's a gift. It's a, 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 you know, painful gift, but so I talk to them about that stuff, but the, you know, I really just want them to be able to do the things that they want to do and not be entitled little shits. You know, it's, it's kind of <laughs> like go be achieved, go for the stars. And then also be the person who is grounded and grateful for like every good and bad turn that, that comes your way. Like if it, it, because I think if, if they could arrive at that spot, they're, they're unshakably happy in a way that, that most people are not. It's kind of that, uh, Victor Frankl, you know, when he's talking about man's search for meaning and when he's in mm -hmm. this concentration camp, the only thing he had agency over when they would give them their daily allotment of bread, he would take part of his bread and give it to somebody else because he had control over that. Mm -hmm. So if you could create something like that, where no matter whether things were, if they're good, you're super grateful. And if they're bad, you're maybe even more grateful because, then you, the, the suck is just less, you know? And so if mm -hmm. I can impart anything like that to the kids, then that's great because then they are going to be bulletproof and they won't suffer the way that many, many people suffer. And hopefully they go on and have their families. And, and hopefully that, that kind of sensibility is able to go forward. Cause I think the world really needs more of that. They need more of a, a Victor Frankel, you know, perspective on things that we're, we're grateful for all of it. And that we do have agency no matter what's happening. So that would be, you know, if I can leave them some material stuff, that's great. You know, it, it's kind of cool that I've done lots of podcasts and been on some TV shows and everything. Like there will always be something that you can be like, Oh, my old man did this, you know? And so there's some kind of, <laughs> yep. kind of cool stuff with that, but above and beyond that, just making them super resilient and appreciative of, of the life that they have. Amen. That might be my favorite answer I've gotten to that question oh, so cool. far. And I cool. love the Victor Frankel reference. I was actually just talking, I was recording an interview yesterday and we were talking about that book just yesterday. Um, so Rob Wolf, thank you so much for making some time for us today. This has been an awesome conversation. Um, I, I'm hoping this serves as a wake up call and, a, a, you know, some guidance for next steps for some people and, and getting their, their own nutrition in line and, and the same for their, for their wives and for their children's as well, children as well. So Rob, where's the best place for us to learn more about you? It's, it's, I know it's a little bit everywhere, but where do you want to send people? Yeah. Uh, Robwolf.com is a good spot. And to that end of like getting things changing, I have a ton of free downloadable guides, like a dining out, a, a how to eat paleo, paleo on the run, like, and, and don't get freaked out about the term paleo. Like it, it's just, you got to put some name on something so that people can find it. Like if you mm. get the basic nuts and bolts of this stuff, it, it shows you how to generally meal plan, how to uh, prep meals, 
how to take what you learn at home. And like, when you go out to eat, how to take that basic template and apply it to the, to the meals that you order out. Like it's all free. Uh, there's all kinds of material on there. So that's a great place for people to interface with me. And also if they are interested in getting going and they need some more resources to do it, that's a great place to start. Awesome. And as we roll out here, I'm going to give a, a, a plug to Element. Um, you guys hooked us up with a, with a big old gift basket full of, I was telling you before we came on, I, I'm, I'm a little stingy with the supplements that I decided to spend <laughs> my money on. Uh, but now that, you know, like Rob said before we came on, he said he's like a little drug dealer. You know, he's got to give out the free samples. And I've been taking it now every day for, I think, right around two weeks. And I've already told Leslie, my wife, like, it doesn't matter what these things cost. But I run out, we're buying more because I love it. It makes me feel incredible. I've had more energy. I'm drinking less coffee. Um, my sleep's improved. I'm sure there's yep. some other variables in between. But I can tangibly say a lot of things are starting to move in the right direction since getting my electrolyte uh, supplementation in line over the last awesome. couple of weeks. So, um, so yeah. Thanks so much for joining us today, Rob. This has been awesome. We'll, uh, we'll talk soon. Take care. All right, everybody. That's it. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't already, do me a huge favor and subscribe to the show or leave us a rating and review. We can't thank you enough for your support. Until next time, remember to love and lead from the front. See you.